Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're doing a short, fun episode because I saw a picture on the internet. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to talk about that picture a lot more in the next episode of Dirt After Dark for our Patreon subscribers, and that's going to be adults only. The picture that Amber is referring to is of the Cern Abbas giant, uh, a giant chalk figure of a person, a man demonstrably a man, just outside well, the village of Cern Abbas in Dorset. Well, I don't know how this person identified, but then again, this person is not animate, so I'm going to go ahead and say man. Just outside the village of Cern Abbas in Dorset, England. The origin and age of the figure are unclear. It is often thought of as an ancient construction, though the earliest mention of it dates to the late 1600s CE. Early antiquarians associated it, on almost no evidence, with a Saxon deity, while other scholars sought to identify it with a Romano-British figure of Hercules or some combination of those things. And just for the record, Hercules isn't such a wild guess because the figure is holding a big club in one hand. What is known about this giant man, however, is that at some point in the past couple hundred years, likely in the early 1900s, he got a cosmetic adjustment to his genitals, making things quite a bit larger. So we'll save the rest for Dirt After Dark, but the point is, Amber saw a news story about dates from this chalk figure based on, uh, actually really cool research based on land snails identified in the chalk, and found out that prehistoric chalk figures were a thing. Yeah, so um, Anna's really like spinning it well. Like Really what I saw was a hilariously nude man. Um, but I am nothing if not a lifelong learner over here so yeah this week's episode is about the chalk figures of the UK and the people who made them and what life might have been like at the time in that place the place fortunately is simple it's the United Kingdom it's just going to be in the United Kingdom or what is going nowhere else Uh, time though is complicated conceptually yes definitely complicated and like not real (laughs) yes um but more specifically the chronology of most of these chalk figures isn't nearly as ancient as people think it is yeah so before we dive into this let's have a very quick geology lesson first so what is chalk and why is there so much of it in the south of the uk this is what we're like, talking I feel about. like this script is going to be like lifted from the text conversation you and I had when I like sent you the photo. <laughs> it is. Well, a lot of it, I take a lot of pointers for when I write scripts, I take a lot of pointers from questions that you text me because I use you as a listener surrogate. I just, you know, I assume that if, if you have questions, other people probably do too. Um, so what we're talking about is not exactly the same as classroom chalk. Remember that? Remember chalkboards? God, I hate whiteboards. Uh, Because that usually comes from gypsum, which is 
you know, it's its own mineral thing. Um, all chalk <laughs> is calcium carbonate, but that can take several different forms, which you may remember me explaining in the Green Sahara episode. The chalk that concerns us today is the chalk formation of southern England, which is the remains of bajillions of tiny, tiny algae that lived their algal lives and died and sank to the bottom of the then ocean. And that layer was laid down under the sea during the Upper Cretaceous period, which was 145 to 66 million years ago. So 145 million years ago to 66 million years ago. And then thanks to tectonic pressure, was later uplifted at around the same time as the Alps were formed. So these uh, formations are these chalky domed hills that formed um, because of this uplift. And those are given, in the UK, they're given the general name, the Downs. So there are the North Downs, Dorset Downs, South Downs, and then there are plains below that where the chalk has eroded. It's no longer a domed hill, but it's a flatter surface. And then, of course, the famous White Cliffs of Dover are part of this formation. They are made of chalk. So... In this southern part of the UK, if you cut into the turf, once you get past all the plant matter and soil, you hit white chalky rock. And if you cut away the turf in a pattern, you get a very striking bright white design on a green background. And that is how these chalk figures were made. Okay, so it's like a design-minded ditch. Like sure. That's what's, that's they what's happening. Really, they should add that to their branding. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that's, it's that's kind of that's what it's it sort is. Sort of like making making a design in like a cornfield by flattening or a wheat field, I guess, by flattening some of the you know right. getting rid of the design and but then this the background. Is some, but this is something permanent, so it is like removing. Maybe not permanent because things will kind of regrow and obscure the lines over time. But um, it's, it's like less. It's, it's less semi, ephemeral yeah. than like this year's corn. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, and I don't really know how long a typical, you know, cutting into okay. turf because like lasts, but sure. The photo that I saw. Yes. Like, it looks like someone took like one of those things you use on like a soccer pitch. It looks like something that is superficial, but it's actually mm-hmm. the, the ground has been cut away to reveal this yeah. sort of bedrock i don't know if but I can, if it's, it's bedrock but, but it is it's chalk it's bed chalk okay <laughs> bed chalk yeah cool all right the oldest known chalk figure or hill figure as you'll also see these called which sounds much more sprightly i like that um, okay but sure. the oldest known one is the uffington white horse so this one is really old mm-hmm. like, like super old actually old yes. actually old uh, so it's thought to date to sometime between 1380 and 550 BCE. So like such which, a range. Right. But that range like corresponds basically to the late Bronze Age in the region. So that's sort mm-hmm. of how and it makes it makes sense that it would be like oh, kind of hard to date something yeah. like this. I'm not that's complaining. What, it's just it's always such so many years in between. So what was going on in the UK? which was neither U nor K during the late Bronze <laughs> Age. Um, anarchy. I mean, not well. In the UK, no. Anna. Anarchy in the UK. That is a song, a musical song. Great. For starters, this period <laughs> lasted for around 1,700 years, starting around 2,500 BCE and lasting until 800-ish BCE. As we've mentioned many times before on the show, ages are tricky. 
They're assigned to history and prehistory retroactively based on the evidence of material culture and people's behavior and technology. They don't usually occur all of a sudden on nicely round numbered years, like everyone had a synchronized Google calendar. Like it rolls over and it's like, ah. Iron Age. So, the Bronze Age, unsurprisingly, corresponds with the arrival of copper and bronze working technology. Bronze Age. These metals were used Mm -hmm. to make tools, weapons, and other objects. This is also the period when agriculture really took hold and people moved away from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle and started staying longer in one place. It's widely thought, although not certain, that bronze was first brought over to Britain by the Bell Beaker folk. (laughs) Me, 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 me. Yes, not to be confused with the Bell Bunsen folk. <laughs> Dr. Bunsen Honeydew? Yes. Yep, I know. Do, do I know want, the name. Do you want credit? I don't know. <laughs> no, I just like, I'm giving myself a little trivia high five. Jeez. <laughs> cool. Um, so they were so named because of their distinctive bell-shaped pottery drinking vessels. You may know, uh, may know them from the novel, The Bell-Shaped Pottery Drinking Vessel. <laughs> By Sylvia Plath. God. They probably came uh. up. <laughs> they probably came up through the southwest coast of Britain, which at the time had rich deposits of copper and tin. Along with nifty new drinkware, the Bronze Age is also the period when we see the building of megalithic structures like those known today at Stonehenge, Avebury, and Silbury Hill. At this time, and a little bit before it as well, we also see a lot of barrow graves. Burials. Not wheelbarrow graves. I just Hink. like. Uh, no, it's just like I got a real like Decemberist vibe from that. Oh it's, yeah, well, it's that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, burials of individuals in tombs built from massive stones, usually containing a lot of rich grave goods. So these were likely important people. The grave goods include well-made stone battle axes, metal daggers with elaborately decorated decorated hilts, and precious ornaments of gold and amber. Hello. Among the golden cups that were found in the graves, some were so like those of the Mycenaeans that they are used as examples to prove the existence of trade between Wessex and Greece. Mm-hmm. And that's not so out of the realm of possibility. So we have a piece from the conversation here, um, and it talks about metallurgy in this time during the Bronze Age and um, sourcing that metal and the way that uh, research has shown where that metal went after it was mined and smelted and turned into whatever it would become. So, quote, understanding Britain during the Bronze Age, circa 2400 to 800 BCE, relies entirely on archaeological research. During this period, agricultural communities combined stock rearing with cereal cultivation. While they constructed numerous circular monuments, evidence for settlement is generally scarce before 1500 BCE and on a small scale. Despite this somewhat insular vision of scattered farming communities, there's growing evidence of strong trade or exchange links with continental Europe. The continent. What the nature of these contacts were in a pre-monetary economy remains a matter of debate. Copper objects like daggers and axes first appear in Britain around 2400 BCE and were associated with people arriving from continental Europe. According to recent DNA studies, which we will link to the the actual articles on the show notes, these arrivals eventually replaced most of the pre-existing Neolithic population over the following centuries. Britain's copper supplies initially came mostly from southwest Ireland, Ross Island, as this source became exhausted... (laughs) like all of us, around 1900 BCE, 
However, small mines opened in Wales and central northwest England. Production in these mines was relatively small and had to be supplemented with metal from the continent. They really like saying the continent. This all radically changed around 1700 BCE with the discovery of the exceptionally rich copper ores of the Great Orm Mine on the North Wales coast. Research published in 2019 fingerprinted the metal from the Great Orm Mine using chemical and isotopic analyses of impurities in the metal. Metal with this same signature is found in bronze artifacts across parts of Europe, stretching from Brittany to the Baltic. This very extensive distribution suggests a large-scale mining operation, large-scale in Bronze Age terms, with a full-time mining community possibly supported or controlled by farming communities in the adjacent agriculturally richer areas of Northeast Wales, where there are signs of wealth and hierarchy, as evidenced by grave goods. That mining boom went bust around 1400 BCE, which we can see in the decline of artifacts made from metal with that same signature. Tracing the metal from the extraordinary 200-year copper boom across Britain and into continental Europe suggests that Britain was much more integrated into European Bronze Age trade networks than had previously been thought. So, there was more contact with the rest of Europe than previously supposed, and it also seemed like at this time there was a good deal of social hierarchy and some regional occupational variety. Lots of folks would probably have been farmers, leading relatively simple farmy lives, but they were likely organized under some larger systems of local government and providing food and other resources for members of the wider community who were either in charge or doing labor other than farming. And so this evidence, plus the fact that megalithic structures and barrow graves show up around this time, is also an indicator of the presence of some kind of larger cultural framework involving ritual. Because, you know, whatever, we don't know what Stonehenge or the Henge at Avebury and the other ones, we don't know exactly what they were meant for. But that's a big community project that requires a lot of people, a lot of organizing and a lot of resources. So it must have been important to them, whatever that was. So while we ponder that mystery. Why don't we kick it over to a quick ad break and then let's get to those figures. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Cultura when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. And so now, speaking of large human-made things of uncertain cultural importance, let's get back (laughs) to our good friend, the Uffington White Horse. A Smithsonian Magazine article written by Emily Cleaver paints a picture for us, saying, quote, 
If you stand in the valley near the village of Uffington in Oxfordshire, England, and look up at the high curve of chalk grassland above you, one thing dominates the view. Across the flank of the hill runs an enormous white abstract stick figure horse cut from the chalk itself. It has a thin, sweeping body, stubby legs, a curiously long tail, and a round eye set in a square head. This is the Uffington White Horse, the oldest of the English hill figures. It's a 3,000-year-old pictogram the size of a football field and visible from 20 miles away. On this July morning, black specks dot the lower slopes as small groups of people trudge slowly upwards. They're coming to clean the horse. It's chalking day, a cleaning ritual that has happened here regularly for three millennia. Hammers, buckets of chalk, and knee pads are handed out and everyone is allocated an area. The chalkers kneel and smash the chalk to a paste, whitening the stony pathways in the grass inch by inch. George Buse, one of the participants, says, quote, It's the world's largest coloring between the lines. <laughs> I bet that is fun, though. Smash, smash, smash. It's very satisfying. Yeah. Chalking or scouring the horse was already an ancient custom when antiquarian Francis Wise wrote about it in 1736, saying, quote, The ceremony of scouring the horse from time immemorial has been solemnized by a numerous concourse of people from all the villages roundabout. End quote. In the past, thousands of people would come for the scouring, holding a fair in the circle of the prehistoric fort nearby. These days, it's a quieter event. The only sounds are the wind, distant birdsong, and the thumping of hammers on the chalk that can be felt through the feet. Conservation organization, the National Trust, oversees the chalking, making sure the original shape of the horse is maintained. But the work is done by anyone who wants to come along. Linda Miller is working on the eye, a circle the size of a car wheel. She says, quote, the horse has always been a part of our lives. We're really excited that we're cleaning the eye today. When I was a little girl and I came here with my mother and father, the eye was a special spot. We used to make a wish on it. End quote. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. It's just nice. Um, I saw some sources that when describing the horse sort of cast doubt on the idea that it might be a horse or just said that there was debate about whether or not it's a horse because granted it is, I mean, it's a pictogram, so it's sort of abstract, but I don't know if I'm influenced by the fact that it's called the Uffington white horse. So I see a horse because I also saw it called like a big cat, like a wild cat or something. But it, to me, it really, really does suggest the body and motion of a horse, like the neck is long and arched the way a horse's neck is. And I don't know. I, I just it's, think it's. It's not one of those alien big cats of the UK. Uh, well Looks known, like a cat yes. to me. Looks like a cat to me. It's an alien big cat. Wow. It has an area of 244 acres. My goodness. Yeah, it's big. It's very big. So that really is an ancient chalk figure with millennia of people influenced by it in some way. But many of the other giant chalk figures in the UK are much younger. Incidentally, someone has thoughtfully made a Google Earth tour of all of these chalk figures, and the link will be on the show notes if you want to take a little armchair visit. I'm going there now. Just, oh, no, that might crash our internet. Oh, it is. Oh, God. I don't know. No. Oh. No. No. <laughs> no. Okay. No. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going there now. Okay. <laughs> Afterwards, you know, it's a, a way of getting out of the house without getting out of the house. <laughs> Um, several of these chalk figures stick with the horsey theme. So there's the Westbury White Horse on the escarpment of Salisbury Plain, approximately 1.5 miles or 
2.4 kilometers east of Westbury in Wiltshire, England. I have no idea where that is. <laughs> Some of so our listeners I'm gonna, do. Well, that's the good thing I, about the Google Earth. Yeah. yeah. So in, in the spirit of like normalizing, not knowing things, I like just found out where Wales is. Huh. Just like never. I knew where it was generally. But now you could really pinpoint it. Oh, now I know exactly where it is. Yeah. Great, great, great. great. (laughs) Okay. I definitely thought Uh, it was on the other side. So I got like (laughs) embarrassing, but it shouldn't be embarrassing because I don't. Sometimes you don't don't know stuff. We can't know everything. We need to know where Wales is. (laughs) I'd like to go there. Um, The origin of the Westbury White Horse, which is where all of that, you know, all those directions lead to is obscure. Like those directions. To us. <laughs> it is often claimed to commemorate King Alfred's victory at the Battle of Ethendon in 878 CE. And while this is not impossible, there is no trace of such a legend before the second half of the 18th century. The figure itself was probably created in the late 1600s, which was several centuries after King Alfred did anything. During the 18th century, the white horse was a heraldic symbol associated with the new British royal family, the House of Hanover. Germans. And it is argued by some scholars that the Westbury White Horse may have first been carved in the early 18th century as a symbol of loyalty to the new Protestant reigning house after the Reformation. But this isn't a British history podcast, so we'll leave the speculating. Which is why I'm on it. Clearly not a British (laughs) history podcast. It's not a British anything podcast. We try. We love you, but boy. There's also the Osmington White Horse. Sculpted into limestone hills north of Weymouth in 1808, this figure is a depiction of King George III riding his famous steed. I didn't know he had a famous steed, but I guess he had one, Who's and it was white. Who was that? Uh, that, was the, that was the crazy George that was ruling when the colonies gained independence. I thought that was the George. second. Was it? No, pretty sure it was King George what, is he like? Is he in Hamilton or something? Is he Uh -uh. the one in Hamilton? I haven't seen Hamilton. Um, I haven't seen Hamilton either. This isn't an American history podcast either. But this is the funny part. Human history podcast. Let me get to the punchline. Okay. The figure is shown riding out of Weymouth, suggesting King George III wasn't welcome, something that apparently aggravated the king so much that he never returned. What? Like, there's the border of, of Weymouth, and the king is shown on the horse, like, riding out out of Weymouth over oh, that. okay. Like, just, bye. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. Um, I don't know. There's also the long man of Wilmington, who is not a horse. Nope. He's a man. That's the outline of a person, presumably a man, but hey, holding a pole or a stave in each hand, kind of like ski poles. So but he's, he's holding them, like, kind of far out from his body. Like, you know, if you were actually skiing, you'd hold your arms close into your body. This is an extremely inaccessible episode for me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you're skiing and thinking about British history and the American Revolutionary War. Gosh, I, I don't. <laughs> and you were aware of British geography and also geology. Sure. Mm. Uh, the origin of the long man remains unclear to other people, not just me. Uh, For many years, the earliest known record was a drawing made by William Burrell in 1766. Burrell's drawing shows a figure holding a rake and a scythe, both shorter than the present staves. 
So he was more, more of a comrade. In 1993, another drawing was discovered in the Devonshire collections at Chatsworth House, which had been made by the surveyor John Rowley in 1710, now the first definite date on which the figure is known to ex- have existed. Mm-hmm. An early suggestion, sometimes stated to be a local tradition, was that the long man had been cut by monks from nearby Wilmington Priory and represented a pilgrim. But this was not widely believed by antiquarians who felt that monks were unlikely to have created an unclothed figure. It can't be naked. <laughs> Bearing the lead there. This isn't the long man. This is the nude man. Um, long nude man. Long nude man. Until fairly recently, the long nude man was most <laughs> commonly asserted to have been cut in the Neolithic period. Mm-mm. Professor Probably John, <laughs> who knows? Sounds good to me. Um, Professor John North wrote in 1996 that during the centuries around 3480 BCE, the figure would have been positioned to mark the constellation Orion's movement across the ridge above it. So Orion was the hunter. He's the, got the belt. The three stars in a row, which is the only constellation I know. He's holding besides the Big Dipper. He's holding a a club, and he's got much like the uh, yeah, exactly. That's what I thought of. That's yeah, but but like representations of like Orion and Heracles, they sort of sort of they overlap a bit. Another suggestion was that the figure had a Romano-British provenance or an Anglo-Saxon one. An Anglo-Saxon brooch was discovered in Kent with a similar figure, thought to maybe be Odin. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. They didn't know either. Huh. No, but nobody knows. Archaeological work performed in 2003 by Professor Martin Bell of the University of Reading in association with the TV program Landscape Mysteries. Yep. I linked to the IMDb page for Landscape Mysteries. I just... <laughs> the first thing they pitched was, what's in that hedge? <laughs> Shut up. Um, this strongly suggested that the figure dates from the early modern period, that being the 16th or 17th century CE. This has opened up the possibility that the long man could be a Tudor or Stuart era political satire. Losing me again. Professor Ronald Hutton noted that, quote, we can at least celebrate the fact that we have our first, apparently unequivocally, early modern hill figure and historians now have to reckon with it, end quote. <laughs> So, I want to go back in time again now and revisit the arrival of the Bell Beaker culture, because there's more to that story. The archaeological record provides us with an impression of change. The Neolithic culture was replaced by, or transitioned into, the material culture that defines the Bronze Age. But genetic studies add a lot more to that story. To a genetic study of the long man. He doesn't have any genes. Oh, he's nude. (laughs) (laughs) This comes from a story in The Independent published in 2018, but it's based on uh, the actual study published in Nature. So both of those will be linked on the show notes. Quote, Genetic discoveries show for the first time that at least in the Neolithic to Bronze Age transition, it was people who arrived, not just ideas. Today, in... (laughs) People with ideas. Today, in genetic terms, the Neolithic population of Europe, which immediately predated the Bronze Age, substantially survives in only one place. Sardinia. Oh. They had it sealed up in a little tin with a key that you have to... Okay. 
In Britain, genetic data was obtained from 51 Neolithic individuals who died between 4000 and 2500 BCE and 104 Copper Age and Bronze Age people who died between 2500 BCE and 1000 BCE. Their skeletal material came from a range of prehistoric sites. Around 55% of the Neolithic individuals' remains came from large communal tombs, with a further 31% coming from caves. Some 88% of the Copper Age and Bronze Age individuals came from mainly individual graves and tombs, with just 9% coming from caves. (laughs) Because all the caves were full of Neolithic people. The research was carried out by an international team of 144 archaeologists and geneticists from institutions in Europe and the United States, including the Natural History Museum, the University of Cambridge, and Harvard Medical School. The study was made possible by an unprecedented collaboration between most of the major ancient DNA labs in the world. Yeah, it seems like most of them were there. Yeah. Co-senior author of the Nature paper, Christian Christiansen, an archaeologist at the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, said, quote, different teams had different key samples, and we decided to put together our resources to make possible a study that was more definitive than any of us could have achieved alone, end quote. It's like, commendable, yeah, work with other people. Mark Thomas, professor of evolutionary genetics at University College London and a co-author on the study, said, quote, the sheer scale of population replacement in Britain is going to surprise many, even though the more we learn from ancient DNA studies, the more we see large scale migration as the norm in prehistory, end quote. Ian Armit, senior co-author and professor of archaeology at the University of Bradford, said, quote, The analysis shows pretty conclusively that migration of the Beaker people into Britain was more intense and on a larger scale than anyone had previously thought. Britain essentially has a whole new population after that period, end quote. But how this dramatic population change occurred is an almost complete mystery. There's absolutely no evidence for any large-scale conflict, so warfare or genocide is almost certainly not the explanation. It's much more likely that the incoming population with more advanced technology, including metalworking, gained control of the best land and resources and succeeded in economically marginalizing the Neolithic population. There is also a distinct possibility that the native Neolithic population of Britain had no resistance to some continental European diseases, and there is some evidence from Europe that bubonic plague, the bacteria Yersinia pestis, may have been the culprit. So that I thought that was really interesting. I, it's like intriguing, especially because we just don't know the cause, but the idea that there was this outbreak you know, carried by colonizers, uh, sound familiar? epidemics wiping out a population and then that population is taken over by a new group of people it does i know this yep heard this one before yeah so while we reflect on that let's take a quick ad break and then uh wrap it up This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. 
Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. Great. Let's wrap up this week's episode. Told you it was short. Uh, with a bit of a roundup, because we have barely even scratched the turf surface on these chalk figures to... Reveal the shock subsurface below. There are many more <laughs> of varying antiquity. Courtesy of the UK branch of Gizmodo, please note that most of these are very local, but are mentioned in reference to very local British geography. Again. So super don't know where they are, but you might. Um, and you can check out our show notes for Google Earth links where you can see them for yourselves. So first mm-hmm. up, we've got the Fovant badges. Mm-hmm. A set of regimental badges cut into a chalk hill located on the Fovent Down between Salisbury and Shaftesbury on the A30. <laughs> Great. <laughs> uh, on the A30 in the Natter Valley. <laughs> so maybe you drive past it. The badges were first created in 1916 by soldiers garrisoned nearby during the First World War while they waited to be sent to France. Of the original 20, only eight remain visible and have been duly recognized by the Imperial War Museum as war memorials. Mm -hmm. So next up, we've got the Bulford Kiwi. This is another hill figure with its origins in the First World War. The Bulford Kiwi is a massive chalk carving on Beacon Hill that overlooks the town of Bulford in the Salisbury Plain in Wiltshire. It was created by soldiers from New Zealand, waiting to be repatriated following the end of the war. It's, be- it's been kept in good condition because it happens to look a lot like the logo of the Kiwi Shoe Polish Company. That's my note. I believe they're the ones who are managing the and, upkeep of, of that figure. And Anna thinks that they've been managing its upkeep. <laughs> Amber, I have a Kiwi fact for you. Okay. Are you aware of the Kiwi's body to egg ratio? I've got a fact for you. No. Great. I want you to click on the link next to that highlighted sentence. Oh, my God. What you're going to see is an x-ray of a kiwi. <laughs> Why kiwi's egg with so an big? egg inside. <laughs> Why kiwi's egg so big? Is the link that I'm clicking. Shut up. Uh, no, I can't shut up because that is the size of the kiwi's egg. It's like it's whole. It's that's all of it. It, it the whole kiwi. <laughs> Correct face. So that's worth listeners. That's worth a quick Google. If you're in front of a computer, because the volume of the kiwi's egg is nearly the I don't know where the internal organs go. But just yeah, just take a look at that and then revel in the miracle of nature. I'm I'm with this commenter. Wowzers. And I thought my boys were big. Lol. My boys? Oh, like human baby boys. Yeah. I'm right there with you, Leanne. That's crazy. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I'm glad I could um share that with you because it's one of those facts that I feel people need to know. Wow. All right. Yeah. Well, next up, we've got the Compton Chamberlain Australia map. Uh, which is what it says on the tin. <laughs> also from World War One, though this one is no longer maintained and has been left to nature. It's a large map of Australia carved into the downs above Compton Chamberlain, where a large number of, you guessed it, Australian soldiers were garrisoned between 1914 and 1919. Apparently, a popular thing to do while you were waiting to go somewhere during or after the First World War, was to uh, cut shapes. Yeah, sure. Um, next up, we've got the Newburgh 
Nubra? Yeah, probably. Mm, Who knows? No. We have the Nubra bear. <laughs> uh, Nubra. It's a relative youngster on this list. The Nubra Nubra bear was created for a local festival in 1980, but its mm-hmm. pedigree as a symbol. The bear and the ragged staff dates back to the Arthurian legends when men were men and fought bears with trees. What? That was the line from this article and I kept it in because when men were men and fought bears with trees. What? What? Gross. Who writes this? I don't care for any of this. Located on Park Hill, (laughs) southeast of Lindorus Abbey, it isn't constructed from chalk, but from a shallow trench where the vegetation is regularly removed by burning. It's burning bear. Burning bear. And then we've... I, this is my favorite okay. one. I'm so excited. This one. I like I like its name. The Watlington White Mark. Yep. <laughs> the reasons for the existence of this hill figure are somewhat strange. The Watlington White Mark was designed by local squire Edward Horn, who reckoned that the parish church of St. Leonard would be more impressive if it had appeared to have a spire when viewed from his home. For no better reason, he had the mark cut into the chalk escarpment of Watlington Hill in 1764 to provide an optical illusion. Yeah, so it's just the mark itself is a very long, skinny triangle. And then right below it, kind of a um, like a, a prism shape, like a rhombus shape. So it provides a trompe l'oeil effect so that when you see it from like the windows of this manor house or whatever, whoever local squire Edward Horn was, it... it puts a spire onto the church that isn't there in real life it's just that's that's fun yeah it's rich people so that is where we're going to wrap up this week's episode and we hope that you enjoyed it just a little short fun one to uh lighten the mood so we'll go into more detail on the CERN Abbas giant under after dark and not just about his naughty bits the only thing that i'm interested in talking about because it's well it's like two or two thirds of Dirt After Dark is going to be real disappointing for you. Then I'm just not sure we can spin out, you know, more than a half hour's worth. I of didn't time know that. I didn't know we were going to. I just thought it was oh, funny. Oh, okay, you just went. Oh, okay, <laughs> it is funny. I didn't. Uh, we'll also talk about the research on land snails that indicates his age and more. As always, thank you for listening. We'll be back in your ears soon with even more content, or we'll be in your eyes if you're watching us on Twitch, um, which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and anywhere else you like to listen. Yep. And you can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. You can find all of that and merch and sponsored episodes and so much more over on our website, thedirtpod.com. Thanks, everybody. Thank we you. love you. Goodbye. Goodbye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.